This podcast is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, the folks at Bella Catering are one of the best catering companies in the whole of Australia and especially in Sydney. But due to the coronavirus restrictions, those lovely folks led by Glenn and Maria are unfortunately struggling but we can help them and I want to help them with this show. So if you guys can and you like delicious things and you're in Australia and you're in Sydney and you're within about a 20K to 30K radius, which is pretty much the entire um, Sydney basin, if you want delicious food at a great price and you want it delivered to your house, bellacatering.com.au is where you need to go. Absolutely delicious stuff, family stuff, like, you know, huge, huge get-togethers that we're doing virtually and things like that. You want leftovers, you want that sort of thing, bam, bellacatering.com.au. Glenn is absolutely a deeply questionable individual. However, that should not be held against him. He has a lovely wife, he has a lovely family, and they've got great staff, and they are awesome. Now, onto the show. This is an excerpt from All the President's Men, written by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. Why should a local district attorney be interested in the records? Before rewriting the Times story, Bernstein called the US attorney in Miami, who said they had made no such request. Bernstein then began phoning the local district attorneys in the Miami area. On the third call, he reached Richard E. Gerstein, the state's attorney for Dade County, Metropolitan Miami. His office had subpoenaed the records and was trying to determine if Florida law had been violated by persons involving the break-in. Gerstein did not know what was in the records, but his chief investigator, Martin Dardis, would. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me is a man who gives good podcast. Forget that he makes theatre. Forget that he's a film reviewer. Forget that right now he's made a moustache decision in self-isolation that only I can see. Um, you can follow it. You can find it on his Twitter if you if you need to. Uh, during and after this show, uh, it's a man who I've had a great pleasure talking to a couple of times. Uh, not only on One Heat Minute Productions, micro-productions like Contention, checking in with him last week, um, but also really uh, a great time talking to him on One Heat Minute. And he's someone who I feel like I needed to talk to as part of this project. And so here he is, Daniel Lemon. Welcome oh. to All the President's Minutes. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very chuffed when I saw you were doing this one because, I mean, with Heat, I had never seen it. So, you know, you invited me on was a reason to see it. This one, I was like, oh, no, this one I have seen. I do know this one. <laughs> You're like, God damn it, Blake. Can you just do the ones I've seen? It makes the process of researching so easy. I mean, let's be honest. The fact that you did another film again after Heat, I was just impressed that you weren't, you know, sleeping for, you know, three years after that. Uh, yes, thank you. That was very nice of you to say. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's, I don't think it would have been conscionable for me to have wanted to do it again, but I just think I found, uh, I think I found a way that I feel like I can add value to the conversation because, uh, it takes a certain level of obsessive dedication to do things this way. Yeah. And... I think this is my way to do it. <laughs> so it's like, once I found my way, I'm like, I think I'm going to stay with this. And it's just, and then, you- then it's a matter of, you know, the, the trouble that you and I have talked about off air is there are, there are several films that kind of demand this level of scrutiny. And then when you want to take yeah. one on, the pressure is on, right? Like, well, or even expanded 
deep dives, you're like, Jesus, I don't know how far we're going to go with this. So you've got to kind of really decide what you're getting yourself into. But if you're going to engage in an obsessive enterprise over, you know, investigating and over analyzing and discussing something, you might as well do, you know, do one of the great films about overanalyzing and <laughs> investigating and dissecting something. Yes. So I feel like with Heat, I was among kindred spirits and the investigative zeal of Woodward and Bernstein in this movie, like just keep re-energizing me like it just keeps re-energizing <laughs> me so that's that's where i'm where i'm really lucky and so i've picked you a really moody minute in a movie that oh. is, is is meant to be like this dialogue laden very specific you know uh true to history account that uh follows along the all the president's men journalistic novel account of what happens and you're in a you're in a descent. You're in like a Hitchcockian moment in this thing. It's uh, I th- and I thought when I was watching it for you, I've been very sort of random with my assignments. I've just kind of gone, this person's available. Great. I want to talk to them ASAP about this next minute. And then when I plunged into this, I was like, oh, Dan would really get a kick out of this. He would, he would really you like it. I have no idea. Like it was exactly <laughs> the same situation where when I watched Heat and I watched the minute that we did and I was like, I hope it's that one. And it was <laughs> with this, when I, I rewatched the whole film again today without paying attention to what the timing was. And then afterwards went back and found out, worked out what the minute was and was incredibly excited because it has one of the images in this film that I've never been able to shake since I started revisiting it in prep to talk to you. There's one image in this minute that I have had think, been thinking obsessively about and was kind of hoping I might get to talk about. Well, um, it is my absolute pleasure by pure coincidence and happenstance to grant you a great film mind to wrestle with something that you <laughs> that is haunting you. That is my dream when I'm assigning a minute is like, no, this is something that haunts me. That's what I, yeah. I love to hear. It's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men. It's directed by Alan J.P. Cooler. It's lens by Prince of Darkness, Gordon Willis. It is written by and in his Oscar winning screenplay, William Goldman and... I don't know any other way to say it, but heavy autorial hands from Robert Redford, both as a performer and a producer and as a on-the-fly rewriter, if you'll believe the revisionist history of this movie, and the incredible Dustin Hoffman. And this minute is stitched into a sequence of the film kind of pluming like a nuclear bomb into something that it doesn't actually know what's there and i think that it's so hard for me to distance myself from it because i've seen it so many goddamn times now but it's hard for me to distance to where i know it's going but i try to very hard look at it objectively before we talk about it and go that conversation in the phone booth is showing woodward's real skill he's flexing finally this ability of that he has to kind of exact you know extract information from people very effortlessly he's talking to a source and at this point you know, we know where the end game is, but if we're following along and we're enraptured with their journey, they've hit a roadblock. There's nothing left. Yep. They've had the red pen and Ben Bradley's glorious feet and his beautiful blue velvet suit on that mm. desk, red penning out their story. There's oh, no story here. So cool. He's- and like weirdly, like <laughs> Dan, oh, just, touched, Dan just touched his face and I feel exactly like it's his face meltingly cool. Robards is Bradley. A, it's it's a so weird cool. Thing to say, but as as Bradley Robards <laughs> is weirdly attractive. Oh yeah, like I, it's no, not. It's not a weird I, thing. I'm like 
I can't take my eyes off him. I mean, yeah. that's like a whole other three hour discussion. <laughs> but it's like at that moment, he, they've kind of red penned out everything. They're doing a bit of a Hail Mary. He contacts this source who basically flat out hangs up on him. Uh, in you know, he's in a phone booth and he's kind of closed off. And then it's in, in another moment of isolation in his private time. He gets this note that prompts him and and nothing about the system of how they will communicate is really enunciated up until this point. We've been able to talk in, if you listen to the last minute with Justin Chang, we talk about nothing about the system has been enunciated. But right now, what we're going to lead off on, and you guys are going to listen to basically some score and a few incidental sounds as we go into this minute. But this is where the portal to what is possible is sort of unfolding in this movie. So Dan and I are going to watch this along. You guys are going to listen. And then we're going to come back and find out which image in this minute, in this 60 seconds, is haunting Daniel Lemon. Pure descent. Is that what it, is is that is that where you are at right now? Is that what can I print? Totally. It it is like it's the shot of him going down the stairs in the, the parking lot. And I think it's it's I mean what you were saying before about the fact of it's that they have hit in terms of like a narrative sense, Woodward and Bernstein have kind of hit a roadblock in their investigation. In a weird way, the film has also kind of hit a roadblock. It's yes. kind of been pre- it's presenting us with a series of narrative machinations that this is how they do this and these are the processes they go through. There's only been one more flare in the filmmaking, like, ob- like you know, obvious flare, which is the shot of you know, them looking through the um, the library notes, the, the zoom up, which is the first time I noted when I was watching it today, that's like nearly half an hour into the film. It's the first time any of David Shire's score comes into the film at all. It is. It is. So exa- like, it is exactly thirty minutes into the film, and you, is, you haven't yeah. and you haven't heard anything else. It's the uh, most Vashinita Mansky, the editor, and I just you know talked about it live as we're recording this. Um. So yeah, it's a uh, it's it's the first time you really have any kind of score kicking through. Totally, and to that and to that point, by the time Bernstein puts the flag out, we've now kind of gotten used to what the visual language and all the way kind of oral language of the film is. And then the film kind of ascends in the way that he's kind of descending down into the car park. The film itself is kind of cinematically ascending because it's also the first time apart from that shot in the, with the rotunda, it's one of the few times in the first half of the film, it actually stops. Like there's no new information being delivered. It's only asking us to sit and consider yeah, yeah. Observe, literally, literally observe and report. <laughs> like we, are, yeah. we, are, we are here just observing silently. Um, so, yeah, I mean, looking yeah, looking at it again, there's one minute again today, I was like, you, like, there's so much going on in this. And it's also the thing of, you know, you remove 
in a way, it's kind of nice that Goldman is not a factor in this minute. I'm obviously, you know, in terms of the structure of the narrative, but this is really a moment where it's Willis, it's Bakula, and it's Shire all working together to just create a single moment of um, of atmosphere and build and tension. Um, and Redford yeah. and Redford to play an instrument, right? So like Redford's instrument yeah. largely is his, his face. Like he, you know, speaking of cool, he's a guy who's effortlessly cool and yeah. everything is written on his face and he's been such that strong silent type and has such an iconic movie face that yeah. he can carry so much. But here it's really only the beginnings, the very, very beginnings of the minute that we're still seeing the continuity of the uncertainty in his face. And then it's kind of assertion, but we can't really see. Like it's pulled back. Yeah. And it happens. It hasn't happened as much in this series as it did the last series because I just seem to be flabbergasted by taking new eyes to it. And maybe my eyes have gotten better at spotting. But he stops at an opera. Like – yeah. Can we talk it like the exit to an opera? Can we talk about anything more operatic and cinematic than like literally descending down into the bowels of Washington DC? Like it is like it's the moment where it's like these guys are exiting opera and right now we're entering an opera. And it's like it, that is totally the reading that can, can be taken into this minute. Um it's 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 a really beautiful little atmospheric, you know, lead in to what we're coming to see. And and he's so incongruous up against it, like it feels like such a strange place for him to be, to, for him for the film to stop. And so much about the film is about the placement of these characters within the landscape. Like you know, I'm, I think in one of the earlier episodes you were talking about, like Washington is so it's at every turn in this film, and then to have him appear at, you know, he's someone we know that he lives in a pretty ramshackle apartment. He's relatively young and inexperienced, um, wonderfully inexperienced, and the place. The, the first step in his journey towards what will, I mean, in a way the film is kind of about two people standing on the edge of um, like the river of history. And it's the the moment where they choose to kind of step into the river of history and allow themselves to be taken along. This I think is the moment and the way he has to step into it is it's stepping into kind of like an other, an other world that is completely separate to himself into, you know, this big opulent, ridiculous opera house has to kind of be a portal for him to kind of also, to, you know, it's, I love that he gets out at a, in a taxi, gets walks into the crowd, and then walks out of the crowd in yes. order that anybody who might be paying attention to what he's doing will not be paying attention to what he's like. He'll get lost within it, and then he has to travel through. Um, and I mean, I could, you know, like things like the staging about the movement of him within the frame and the movement of the car in the frame. Like, I don't know if I talked about this in. But it's also it shows. Uh, uh, it's also about his tradecraft, so to speak, right? Like if we think of espionage films, the tradecraft yeah. of like a more experienced espionage agent is they take much more time. Like I, I think a deeply totally. we haven't mentioned much in this film, but like a deeply underrated movie in my mind is Spy Game. I think Tony Scott's Spy Game is just it. It really encapsulates the coolness of Brad Pitt and the coolness of Redford, and there's a passing of the torch. And I think Scott loves that loves that cinematically, loves what the story is doing. And there's an effortlessness to him as in Redford when he's an older man around just sort of navigating these situations. He always seems to know people. He always seems to know people in the room. He always seems to be able to get in and out of places. There's just no, there's, there is no friction whatsoever. But here mm. it is, the way that it's staged is great 
because we also see that he's not very good at this. Like he gets out of the cab, he darts into the crowd, he kind of like cursorily glances over his shoulders and then he darts into the cab. So like really, if someone was really watching him or multiple groups, you're like, he's not very good at this. And but but of, of course he doesn't because he doesn't know what it is. Like <laughs> he, he doesn't, doesn't know, know that he's walking into the biggest political scandal of the 20th century. That <laughs> you know, like that moment at the end where he realizes where they actually realize that they're in actual danger yes. at the very end of the film. You know, you realize they have no like. It's one of the things. Like one thing I picked up on was that you know, Pakula is making the assumption that we know what the end of the story is. Of yes. course we do. And particularly if it's you know, coming out in the mid-70s, they know what the story is. But in a way, he's also weaponizing that. Because, I mean, like one of the, another aspect of this is that it's one of, the, one of the many moments in the film where you have this kind of almost subjective view. Like, there's a lot of shots in this film of the characters from above, um, you know, cars driving, from, following cars driving from above, or the audience watching them. Yes. It's the thing of going, we know what's going to happen. The joy of this film is watching them work out how to do it. Like in, in, in a film, in any other kind of film in this context, the score would be quite, would be brooding or haunting or about building tension. But what Shy is doing, particularly in this sequence, which is so much linked to, I think, the idea of myth-making in this film is that it's a sense of magic, the sense of we know, if, you know, this is, this is a, a hero's quest and we know the journey these heroes are going on. We know that at the end of the, ti- at the, end of the, the, um, the journey is victory, there's so much a sense of it, like, like ed, egg, egging them on, like you know, we're 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 observing them put the pieces together, kind of you know, following the, the you know, following the the treasure map to find out what the treasure is at the end. Um, it feels like it's always like this meditative sequencing. Like I'd, I've just been thinking about it as you're talking around a hero's journey, a hero's arc. It's like this, the score sort of goes dun, 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 dun. And there's like one, so that's yeah. one, two, three, four notes. And then it will jump up to five notes and then to six notes. It's like the additions of these rolling, uh, these rolling scales in the piano mm-hmm. and, and then, and then rolling back. It's like this sequential ascension of putting these pieces together and then going back yeah. and doing it again. It's like by definition is the same process that we want these guys to go through, right? Like we yeah. want them to be meticulous. We want them to put all the pieces together. We want them to understand that picture and then move on to the next picture and do the same thing again. And it's just, like you said, it's it's you, the isolation and the intent of the score, where it falls and where it falls specifically in this minute and the way that it does, it always, it's one of those things like, you know, when you have a favorite song and there's a pause in it, like, you know, yeah. I'm thinking of uh, uh, like in Dre 2001, there's like a pause in a rap, like in the middle of the rap song. And I remember you, you knew you knew the song really well when you were singing along with your friends and rapping along to the song and then you could perfectly time out the pause and then come back in. Like you kind of like, I remember being in like year 10 at the train station, listening with my friends on like a, ta- on a Walkman or something like that, or a Discman and be like, yes, I actually know this song well enough. I can do that. But that's one thing that's kind of implacable about this score is you kind of go, oh, the score comes in here. And so with me, I've like watched this minute five or six or seven times today, like in readiness to talk to you. And almost every time I've watched it, like I'm wrong about where I think the score comes in. Like my memory mm. cheats me. It's like it's it comes in just that I don't know that half second before, half second after when you would expect that it does come through. And but when it's there, it's I don't know. It's there's something. 
It's there's a it's, there's a magical tone. I I love how you said that. There's a magic. I think that that's the right word. That's the right word for this score. I think in jumping off your example of you know the pause in the song, it's about creating the sense of anticipation. Yes, like we again we like you know it's if for particularly for an audience then. I mean, I imagine I, I don't know how familiar people were before the film came out with the, with the existence of Deep Throat, like, you know, how much the public was aware of it in the reporting. But certainly for us now, we know that when he goes in that car, we know that there's one major figure in the story we haven't met yet, and that's Deep Throat. That's and, then, and then particularly with the framing of the shot of him going down into the car park, this big wide shot where he's a tiny figure going from light to dark. Um, we know that that's moving in towards the most mysterious aspect of the story, which is this shadowy figure in the dark wearing a suit who gives them pearls of information and wisdom that we don't know at the time. We don't know the identity of yes. in a way. It's kind of like Theseus going into the, into the labyrinth to go and find the Minotaur. Yes. It's, it's the point where the film it's the anticipation towards the point where the film becomes mythical in a way. Um, because in a way, he's still I mean, a mythical figure, right? Like he's a mythical figure yeah. until 2005. So you've got to think yes. like 30-odd years of this movie existing, almost 40 years of this movie existing. There's only speculation about who Deep Throat is. And that and builds the myth. That builds and, and feeds and, f- and, and flames it. I remember when I was – because I first found out about Watergate when I was a teenager. I remember watching – I don't know if anyone else has, heard, has mentioned this film at all in the podcast. But do you remember this film would have been the late 90s, early 2000s that had Michelle Williams and Kirsten Dunst in it called Dick. Do you yes. remember? Do you, are you, yeah. yeah. So I watched that when I was a teenager, <laughs> which is a terrible film, but like they're great in it. And I became obsessed. You know, you're, there, you what are the second person who's mentioned it because oh, the, good, portra- the portrayal of, I think it's, who's it? Will Ferrell and someone else play Woodward and Bernstein? Like a yeah. ridiculous version. Who are they? I can refresh my memory. Um, it's Will Ferrell and I can't remember who the other actor I'm gonna, is. I'm going to be I, Google. I'm going uh, to, you, you, keep, you keep your point, but I'm going to vamp and anyway. find out who that is. The thing that I found the most fascinating when I then was like, what's this Watergate thing? The thing I found the most fascinating was the idea of Deep Throat, this figure who at the time we didn't know the name of, that I didn't entirely even understand exactly what it was that they had done. I knew that it wasn't two teenage girls who lived in the Watergate, but wanting, like, and I remember when it was, when, when Mark felt, not Mark felt's name came out, I was actually slightly disappointed because I was like, oh, I never wanted to know who Deep Throat was. I wanted him to yes. be like Jack the Ripper or the Zodiac Killer. I wanted him <laughs> to be this legendary mystery man who changed the course, uh, changed in his own special way the course of 20th century history. Um, and in this sequence very much follows that. I mean, yeah, like you said at the time, they don't know who this person is. Um, and so then this is where the story becomes not just about watching two guys run around, you know, following a story. It's them entering into the myth of history in a way. Yeah, d- the the Woodward and Bernstein. Just for clarity, Bruce McCulloch <laughs> plays Bernstein. Yeah. Will Ferrell plays Woodward. If that's your exposure to these guys, <laughs> that's a, I bless you. That's that's really fun. I, I I I too kind of agree. It's one of those challenges where you go like that, but also the electric bolt that happens if you've gone deep enough down Watergate is that you know like you know the the early 2000s internet threads and 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 conspiracy theory yeah. forums and the equivalents kind of always made sense that someone had to be in an intelligence agency feeding them this information. And it made the most sense yeah. that that was the FBI. And then, you know, even Mark Feld's name 
was mentioned as like this is the this is a potential deep throat. Like, and some people believed yeah. it was Mark Felt before he even announced that it was. It's one of those things. But I tend to agree. You know, like the when you're looking at it from a purely mythical perspective, um, you you don't want to know. I don't want to know. Who no, it is. I, I I want I want there to I want to imagine what that I'm. I'm the guy who doesn't need any Star Wars prequels. How's that? I'm no. the guy who doesn't yeah. need anything. I don't care. All you're doing is ruining Darth Vader. Darth <laughs> Vader's fine, okay? He's fine. Yeah. Uh, and you're ruining Anakin Skywalker and you're ruining the whole family. I mean, even more than the Rise of Skywalker does, you're just ruining everything. Like, I don't need to know it. Um, and I think it's a testament to that. Uh, you know, it's it's really hard to, to nail what, this person's motivation is. And like, I think that this is where Pacula because of his experience with the paranoia thriller. And this is where Goldman from a pure scripting and functionality perspective gets that it's so much easier to strip the detail away from this guy and make him a mysterious figure, even within the film. Yeah. Because if you just take away the details, you reorder things, you limit the information, even of the system. And then the, mm. the subsequent scenes, can just you just like assume that people have got the rhythm of how this is going to work? Bang, you just get into it. And so for me, yeah, I, yeah, I, you know this, I, you know, the thesis and the Minotaur allegory is, uh, in comparison, is 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 very very apt. I think. Well, it's something I've been thinking about, like with rewatching it and considering the film. And one of the, like as strange a question as this is, one of the things that I've been thinking about with it is why does this film exist? Because I mean. Yeah. It's made so close. I mean, it's, and that's a question that comes because I know that in the previous discussions you've had, the subject around the immediacy of the release of the film comes up, and you, know, you have examples of, you know, Paul Greengrass, Greengrass's um, United 93 and um, Oliver Stone's World Trade Center, and then you have um, that terrible Clint Eastwood film with the two, where, where the guys play themselves on the train. Like, what is the, what is the purpose <laughs> of when these, uh, what's the purpose of a film coming out about very, very recent history? Um, and so that was kind of a question I had with this film. I was like, okay, what is it? What purpose is it serving? And looking at it, I was like, I think what this, I don't think this film is, was, I just, I was wonder whether it was made for then and not actually made as a document for forever. Like, to, for, uh, you know, kind of trying to capture the moment and the mood and the potency of what had just happened for posterity. I don't necessarily think it's, a, I mean, for audiences in, in America in the 1970s, they know the story of what's happened. But maybe there's a sense of, I don't know, I keep coming up with this story of, of this thing of myth-making, but I mean, that particularly with the way that he frames a sequence like this and the way that Gordon Willis um, shoots it and lights it and the way that Shire scores it and, and the way that Pakula moves the pieces, the chess pieces around within the frame, that it's going, no, this is an important piece of American mythology now. Watergate kind of is now for us. Like, we, it's become a byword for us. Yeah. And a lot of... Oh, I think a lot of the reason why that happened is because this film is so potent and clear in its storytelling as a hero's journey. Um, I th I think the objectivity of the reporting, because it was a flood of reporting, the Watergate, like whether you've listened to this podcast, whether you're obsessed with just the actual books from Bob Woodward and Bernstein and then later on Woodward himself, whether you're obsessed with the reporting, whether you attended Watergate, whether in modern times you've listened to Leon Nafuck's incredible slow burn show, whether you've then gone on and watched the television adaptation, there are so many weird and wonderful characters that 
emerged out of Watergate and that people were seeing on their televisions every day. And it was Nixon's eclectic guys, like all those mm. presidents meant, like that the, the mm. title of this film gets were the interesting characters that formed it. And I think what Redford maybe had the impulse for, because people had always seen the bylines, they'd seen these names, these American journalist names who were lionized um, later. I think he always saw that their story and their pursuit and their tenacity was worthy of elevation. And so I think, totally. and I think that it's really hard. Like, and I imagine, you know, we now have equivalents of it. And I think of someone like Ronan Farrow, who, whose book now catch and kill talks about, you know, and there's, and there's a couple of books, you know, um, uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to dismiss other people for it. it's like, it's like she said and catch and kill are kind of the two seminal novels, but it's like those books then lionize reporting. And, yep. and, and then what happens is when you're just seeing bylines, you're hearing about accounts of victims, you're hearing about perpetrators of bad deeds. And I think that what the impulse here was is like, who the hell is this byline and how the hell yep. did they get this story? Totally. And, and, I, and I think that even in Woodward's, uh, sorry, in, in Woodward's original accounts with Redford, this is kind of the myth-making behind the myth-making, right, is that, <laughs> that Redford's like, no, the story's about you guys. It's about you. Like you, when you write the book, people don't want you to just recycle what you wrote in the paper because we've read it. Mm. We've seen it. Because they're, the, yeah. they're the heroes yeah. of the story. Yeah. Like without them, the story doesn't happen. I mean, it's that point where, you know, you know, um, in the edit, editorial meeting where they're like, no one else is reporting about this. Why are we the only ones reporting about <laughs> Why this? Are we, do we um, have the monopoly on wisdom? Why does yeah, the Washington yeah, Post exactly. have the monopoly on wisdom? And so then- I, yeah, it, 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 it elevates them to, you know, American heroes, but not to, not in the kind of patriotic sense, but in the, you know, the kind, again, like a mythological hero sense. I know it's something that I keep getting stuck on, but it's like, I'm also because just fascinated by the decision to end the film where it does. Like it ends mm-hmm. it with the sense of anticipation of where is this going to go? But the film doesn't need to show any more than that. It shows the journey from um, innocence to experience. It shows the journey from, you know, they, you know, all that happens is that um, Woodward, wakes up of a morning, goes to the courthouse and just asks who are the lawyers for the, for the Watergate burglars. At the end of the film, they're going to realize that they're being bugged by the, by the government. <laughs> they've got, they're, like they're literally, they've, I, the analogy, another analogy I thought of was they're basically, it's a film about two men dancing on the edge of a precipice that they don't have any, and they don't know the precipice is there. And no at the clue. end of the film, no, no clue. But, <laughs> and at the end of the film, that scene with Bradley is them realizing that the precipice is there, that the whole country is dancing on the edge of it, and that they're the only ones that seem to have worked out that it's there, and it's their job now to make sure everybody knows before we all fall in. And so it's, the, it's so much about the, like, I love the framing of it just has to be the beginning of the story. We don't need to know what happens later because it's the, the greatest arc for them is just in, in that, in this section of their yeah, story. Their, their conflict is, their conflict is with, keep is 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 not being deterred it is just it is it is knuckling down and digging and it feels like an impossible rock shelf you know you're going through not no part of what they're trying to dig they're trying to dig through concrete with a spoon like it's not you know it's it's not happening easily it's grinding every single day. It's not like digging through Alcatraz, you know, as, no. as, as the the escape from Alcatraz is like turning the rock, you know, all the all the seawaters rocked it in uh, in Don Siegel's great film. It's it's like 
they're, they're digging through and it's taking years, you know, essentially mm. to, to get, to get to the bottom of this. But I, this is, this is what is exciting me about this pursuit and discussing this film, especially with you and everyone who I've spoken to is when you ask why this movie was made and how it's made, it's like getting to the bottom of it and feeling like you've, you're understanding what they wanted to do still then completely flabbergasts me because it's like they ended up making this timeless document that mm. required immediacy that that had this like fire on under it to to happen. It is rele- It is screened in 1975. Mm. They're still actively writing about this stuff. Nixon is impeached in 74. The movie's in production is in soft production in 74 at least. There are people attached. They're building sets. Yeah, you know, they're building spending sets. Five, spending $500 a desk to buy the right desk. Yeah, they're buying, the, the, they're, they're shipping the waste from Washington Post newsroom to Burbank, right? Like things are happening and they make it and not only do they like nail it, they nail it in perpetuity. So we can look back at these things that are absolutely functionally and logically Decisions that are made for the contemporary, the, the crowd of their peers and contemporaries who have been flooded yeah. with Watergate every goddamn day on television and in the paper. And it's like people are like, it's like popcorn. It's better than sports. Like people are in there every day watching this crazy band of misfits that surrounded Nick, Richard Nixon, like spilling their guts on live television every single day. And so they have to make calculated essential choices in their storytelling to make sure that they're not being rote or make sure yeah. that they're not they're not falling into traps that are just going to have people rolling their eyes they're trying to keep it interesting and evocative and and but also very factual and then later it still works that's yeah. what's, that's what's crazy to me Dan because like the most immediate example we talked about the 9/11 examples the most recent one to me and like yeah the actual most recent one is the what is it 517 to Paris Clint Eastwood's movie oh. I mean, uh, oh. whatever forgettable <laughs> but let, let's just think of the social network like that is a movie yeah. that is made at its time it's made really immediately people are wondering what the relevance of this thing is and then later on you look back at it and it's two guys both Bill Goldman acolytes, Fincher and Sorkin, making this movie together almost in his style with their immediacy, with that tenacity to make it. It comes out, they make the film, and we look back at it now and one of the biggest criticisms you can give is like they didn't go far enough. Like with we, yeah. on the precipice of Cambridge Analytica, it's like, man, these guys didn't go far enough. They kept it too much to the ego. They kept it to one guy's ego. And this egomaniacal pursuit instead of this foundational life-changing entity that becomes like Big Brother before we even realize that it was Big Brother. The other, I think, the other reason why I think the social network fits really nicely as as a point of comparison to this to all the president's men in the same way I think it also fits really nicely as a comparison to something like something like Zodiac and maybe to a certain extent something like The Post is that on the surface it's a film about. You know, the social network is a film about Facebook. This is a film about Watergate. Zodiac is a film about the Zodiac Killer. But that's just the backdrop on which to talk about something yes. much more fascinating and much much grander, which is the human beings over like human beings 
bringing um, power and the mechanisms of power, um, like, you know, ma- making them accountable. Like, so much about this film is about, you know, you, you know, for every, in 1975 and 76, when it was made, when it was made, Audiences know Holderman, they know um, Ehrlichman, they know Nixon's face, they know all these figures, and all of them are stripped out of this film. It's just focusing on these two people. And in a way, it's that thing of, like, by watching in this particular minute, you're watching this little figure by himself (laughs) go and have a conversation that's going to set off a chain of events that is going to bring down the President of the United States. In a car park. (laughs) You know, in a poorly poorly lit car park, in two cab rides. a beautifully lit car park. Oh, sorry, sorry. A I mean, distinctly beautifully lit car park. Okay, can we say a poorly lit for the function of a car park? The most yeah. stunningly lit car park for the bowels of of a maze. You know, like, <laughs> I, I, I like to be honest. If I was if I was him, I wouldn't walk into it. It's too like it. Yeah, cinematically, it looks absolutely perfect. And if you walked into it, you'd like be like, "Fucking, I don't know what's in those shadows. I know I don't know what's in those shadows." But that's why walk out of it per- all the that's time. that's why Redford's the perfect Woodward. Because we're yeah. just, you know, we are watching this guy go go down to the bowels, and he's just that unflappable personality of Woodward's. That's sort of this passive tenacity, um, and just wanders in. To go off on a slight tangent before getting back to social network and that kind of stuff, there's a really lovely thing that this this particular minute does. I don't know if I talk about this on heat, but there's a, a theory that I was I was taught in terms of. Um, movement of actors on stage that if you present an audience with a character walking on a stage from an audience perspective from left to right, the audience feels very comfortable. If you have them walk from right to left, it makes the audience feel uncomfortable because in the Western world, we read from left to right, not right to left. I don't know if that, if it's still, it's the same in countries where reading is in a different direction, but that's a theory that would. And so with this scene, I was paying attention to, you know, Redford always moves from left to right, even though the car always moves from right to left. So he moves from left to right at the opera house, gets in the car, the car moves off from right from right to left, which gives us a sense of there's a sense of danger and foreboding, particularly with how mysterious so he, he's, he's walking the right way, but he's yeah. going he, but he's going the wrong way. He doesn't realize where he's going. Well, he's in, he's taking a dangerous route. And then yeah. when when um Pakul, when in the framing of the shot of him going down the stairs, he's on the left hand side of the frame, which is in the more comfortable side. So in a way it's like we know he's going into danger, but we know he's going to be okay because he's on the right path he's on the right in path. a weird way. You know, yeah. I think it's so funny that and, – and I don't usually talk about like too much when I record these things because sometimes I record them out of order. But today I've recorded in sequence the 36th and 37th minutes. And I think and, – and, and last night I was even talking – to uh, another another person who's talking about this underground car park scene, and we were trying to discuss what it is about Pacula. So I won't ruin the upcoming minute that you're going to talk about, but I mm. think it might be you might have just hit on something, Dan, which is Pacula so subtly manipulates rules. Like he doesn't, he's not yeah. a breaker. Like it's not overt. It's never showy. His style of uh, of his moody style, his his ability to make people feel disquiet and unease. But what he does is he just does little things like you're talking about. Like that's another that's another bit of misdirection mm. and technical misdirection that is so subtle. Like that someone who's a practitioner like you is like, I was taught never to do this, but Pacula does it. He does it 
eight times well, in this minute. It's, no, it's, 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 right. it's not even that it's not a thing you should do. It's a thing that like it's it's a tool that you then can use. Like I know I've definitely used it as a director of going, okay, if I want to make an audience feel uncomfortable, all I have to do you is do have it. the action go from the right to the left. left. Yeah. And I've you know there have been times where I've taught um, theatre students the same kind of like sat them down and gone like just look at this as an example, and they've all been really surprised at how simple a technique it can be. And that's one of the things I really love about the direction in this film is the fact that Pacula's blocking is so simple. He's yes. not being particularly, like, and even just down to the fact of, like, there's that moment after um, when Redford realises, when Woodward realises in the third um, scene with Deep Throat, realises the absolute enormity of what's happening, of just having him walking by himself at dawn in an enormous car park, of going, this is the staging. The world that this character exists in, he's getting bigger and bigger every time that he, the, every revelation, the world gets bigger and he gets yes. smaller. Yes. And so, I mean, you know, the, the, the journey for them is at any point, it would be completely understandable that they, it, it would become too overwhelming and they would just have to stop the same way. It's the same with like, um, Adam driver's character in, um, in the report of like, it could get to all, you know, um, Robert Graysmith and Zodiac, it could like this could become too overwhelming, and the beauty is that he puts these tiny figures in adversity against giant backdrops where they could be overwhelmed and eaten alive. Yes, and yet they keep going. He always has them in constant motion and continuously moving forward and moving through these spaces, working against these spaces, defying the kind of the um, the natural movement of these spaces to assert their existence and assert their um, their work within it. There's one thing I want to tack on, which I think is a beautiful comparison that you've made, but it's at the beginning of the film, there's what I'd call like a comfortable hum. There's a hum mm. of a city that is indifferent, mm. that is still functioning and operating while they're in the middle of their investigation. They're going up and down streets that are busy and thriving. And I think what Pacula does, he makes just this very functional decision that as the story goes on, they're operating in the dark, in isolation. There is no movement. There is no hum. Mm. Every they, they are in silence. They're hiding behind trees. They're knocking on doors at three o'clock in the morning. You know, they're they're, they're walking through dawn car parks. You know, to mm. and the entire city Even is dwarfing the- them, and there's nothing there. So it's like that whole thing of like you are being progressively more and more alone. Like the structures, I think it even, I think that's the, the, almost the, um, the instigating moment is as they, I love it as they walking into the suburb and they're like, isn't it strange that you, you mm. know, um, you know, you walk through here and it's all so picturesque and, you know, you couldn't believe it. And, you know, Woodward goes, no, it isn't like, yes, you can. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is, this is bad. No, you know, this, this is bad. I can believe that there's gnarly but things going behind these locked doors. The newsroom- even the newsroom gets quieter and there's all that action happening behind him with people watching the TV and responding and he's having to kind of block them out. By the time you get to the end of the film, that very amazing last shot where you, you know, you have these two tiny figures dwarfed by the image of, of Nixon in the left-hand side. There's almost no one else in, in the newsroom around them. It doesn't like your focus all, is just on all, these two points. They're all watching the inauguration and these guys are going, totally. if I don't stop writing, he's going to have four more years. So I better, better keep writing. The other great thing about one other thing I love in this film is the use of Nixon as a presence. Because the thing is, I realized watching it today, by the end of this film, they still don't know that he's actually the person at the top of the chain. 
they know, like, that they've gotten to a certain point, but they don't know that Nixon's actually, like, that Nixon knows about this. And yet Nixon is completely present through the whole film, oh, like I, this I, villain. I think, I, think by, I think by the end, they like that. those last lines, I've always taken it as they have. Maybe that's a, that's a point of contention between the, the two of us. I've always taken that they do know it's Nixon because when he says it goes all the way to the top, like it goes, yeah, like, like that, those moments when they're like, it goes all the way. I think they've got an, they've got, they've got an inkling that if it's, if it's not Colson, you know, like, you know what I mean? If it goes all the way to Colson, then Nixon has to know. Like it's, I think yeah. that that's the tipping point and the movie's smart enough to, it's so hard. It must've been an impossible thing to go. Like if you mention him, if you mention him hard, we have to we have to show him or something. We have to infer, you know, we 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 have to get a performer. We have to do something. It's like we basically totally. you have to go to right to the edge and never talk about him because then later on the power is that you're watching him in these inaugurations and you're watching him in these deliveries of speeches, but and you've got that distance from him. He's and too it's that overwhelming. Kind of ma- and that masterstroke is the fact that he's. For the audience, we know like what they find at the end. Because I think you're right. I think you're probably right. They do work it out at the end. What what they find out at the end, we know from the beginning. So the moment that the helicopter touches down at the beginning, we know that's the villain. That's the bad guy. <laughs> and every time he appears within the film, we know that that's the bad guy, even if everybody else in the film doesn't know it yet. And so it's that it's again, it's the beauty of um, of Pacula weaponizing the fact that we, as the audience, know the end of the story that. He has the villain always there. It's just that the heroes don't know the villains there until the, until we get to the end of the film, and so that's when it can it, you know that's their moment of um, realization and ascension, and that's where they can go off and complete their quest. Is realizing we now know who the villain is, but we also now know what the stakes of the quest actually are, yes. and we now know how dangerous but how worthwhile the quest is. How much do you go and revisit this movie as a man who's obsessed with films like Zodiac? Is this on your list? To be honest, I when you messaged me to ask me about being on the show, I had seen it before a few times when I was a teenager, but my memory of it was very sketchy. So I got the Blu-ray from the States and I watched it. And I think I've watched it three times in the past two months. <laughs> because it, it, and the funny thing was, every this is going to sound like a terrible thing to say, the first two, the first thing, the first time I watched it, maybe the first two times, I kept falling asleep at the same point, and it wasn't <laughs> because I wasn't enjoying it, but because I found it so comforting. Like it's a it's, weird, in it's a, a weird, rhythm, it has a rhythm. It's so weird. Yeah, it has a rhythm, and if it gets but you, a, it's over. And but it's in a way that I also find another way that I find Zodiac so comforting and the post so comforting <laughs> of seeing. I, I of just, seeing I, I just think that some people go, Oh, I get how the post is comforting. Well, you're like Zodiac's comforting to you, Dan. Yeah. 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 Totally. It's also comforting because, to me. It's also comforting to because me. Because it's about people doing good people facing an impossible task, doing their jobs because it is the right thing to do. Yeah. And it's told in a way where it doesn't, uh, belittle their story. It doesn't downgrade their story. It kind of op- it kind of embraces the operatic nature of it. I mean, I think as much as there's a very beautiful directness to all the president's men. It's very simple. It's very clear. It's very clean. It follows a very clear. Like, even just the fact of it has so few characters. It just focuses primarily on these two men. It's such a beautifully theatrical and operatic film in really very subtle ways. And you know, it's kind of like it's one of those Rosetta Stone films where. 
in order to, like, in a way, in order to understand Zodiac, you have to understand all the president's men. There are literally lines <laughs> from all the president's men in Zodiac. The moment where Bernstein says, you know, you know, when he's asked, where's the story? Oh, I've written it. Um, why isn't it down? Oh, I'm still working on it. It's literally the same things that, As Paul um, Avery. that Downey Jr. That Paul Avery hey, says hey, at the beginning of the film. I'm not Avery. Okay. <laughs> Just I am know. not Paul Avery. <laughs> I'm not Paul Avery. <laughs> There are so many, it kind of becomes part of the language of the best kind of films about people doing what is right, even if it's the, it's the most dangerous thing to do. Yes. And that in a weird way becomes really comforting. And it's not, and, and that it also embraces the joy of it. It's one of the things I really love about The Post. I really, really love The Post because it's such a joyful film. Yes. And that even though it's, you know, it's sentimental and it's, um, and it's at times quite emotionally obvious in all the ways that Spielberg can wonderfully be. That's the comforting thing about it. And in the way, and like even in Zodiac, the fact that Zodiac has such a great um, spring to its step in I, a way that this really, also has. I really wish I could find the tweet. I was just thinking about it now. There was a wonderful tweet, which is like, Steven Spielberg is a filmmaker who like does not need to ram anything down your throat, but is so used to how stupid audiences are. He's, <laughs> he always has a just in case you missed it moment in his movies, like just in case you missed my entire point with this. Um, and I think that that's like a, a sort of, um, that's like a, a staple. It's always the last minute. It's like always a la- in the last, it's it's the last like, 60 seconds. Last 60 seconds, last something. And it's like, sometimes it completely rams a message home in a poignant way and other times it can feel like it's being really obvious. And so, yeah, I think that that maybe is a fair criticism of the post, but I think that, that the, that is trying to tell a story um, about a bunch of people who want to get an opportunity to, to, to have a say about what happens in their town and, you know, and, 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 and how they know this town works and, 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 not necessarily the New York Times having the you know the 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 monopoly on wisdom. Basically, it's a it's a it's a great story, and it's that passion and tenacity, and people just loving the news. So it's got a lot of those and, good and, qualities. And what makes it work as a film? What makes all three of them? And I would say the same for um, the report as well. What makes all of them work? The report, the I think, is they, so fantastic. It's such a great film. Great um, film. I literally in, finished in ten, watching it. Like in ten years, we're going to talk more about that film. That's just a great I, film. I literally finished watching it like 10 minutes before I got on to talk to you because I, I finished watching all the presidents making and I was like, I'm just going to watch the report. But it, it's the fact that those films know exactly what their thesis is. Like these films know exactly what kind of story they're going to tell. It's one of the problems I have with Spotlight is that I don't know what the fuck Spotlight's about. <laughs> it's trying to be about, it's trying to be about too many things. It wants to be about um, great investigative journalism, which at its best, that's what it's about. But it also wants to be about sexual abuse in the Catholic church, but it can't be about both. Because the great thing about all the President's Men and Zodiac and um, the Post and the report is that the story is not the story. The people telling the story and the process they go through is the story of the film. I'm going like, to give you, the, I'm going to give you a Rosetta Stone to watch Spotlight and and, all right. and work. Okay, what right. what Spotlight is, you know, what we've talked about in the report and we talk about in Zodiac and we talk about in all the President's Men is when they find this story, they don't know what it is, right? They don't, they don't, they, you know, at the beginning of all the stories, they don't know what it is. Yeah. And when there's a, there's an impulse, there's a tireless pursuit to go, we are going to go further, farther. We're going to dig. 
and that and that breakthrough moments and 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 then the stakes that's part of the journey but it's like that tenacity and that intent to do good and that that, that scratching this in implacable itch this in, this frustration that there's more to this mm. the spotlight spotlight's the inverse of that so from a, so? from a directorial perspective tom mccarthy's doing one thing as a director stylistically he's doing exactly what leave schreiber is doing as the editor he's circling in red pen adjectives he's taking away descriptive language and what he's doing is he's telling a story about discovery with a bunch of people who've all had opportunities to uncover it who've all been exposed to it who've all probably heard about stuff and didn't believe there was a problem it is it is a, it is the inverse it's going these are a bunch of people who just by definition in the town and the way that it functions and that and that what is quintessential bostonian what is something that is like culturally important to them their their catholicism and and you know quintessential to their who they are is all of the regret of looking the other way is written on every single character's face and mm-hmm. what what it takes is the breakthrough moments are not to do the right thing the breakthrough moments are to basically implode and to admit guilt for their own lack of action, but to move past the lack of action to to actually get redemption. It's not about pursuit necessarily in the same stretch as like a hero's quest. It's actually about people who are flawed and people who've kind of squashed some of that journalistic impulse and the blind spots. And I, I, I personally... I feel like I watched it with the same lack of um, lack of connection that you did. Mm. But very recently, I watched it again, and I've even watched it a couple of times and had that lack of connection. But this most recent time, when I looked at Leave Schreiber's face, this you know, I think it's just you know, I was talking to Justin Chang about it being like marble. He's like this, yeah, this career best performance. And you watch every line of all these guys on their faces, you know, Keaton particularly, and it's it's and um and uh, John Slattery and just everyone it's it's though it's so nakedly lined and worn and weathered and you know complicit in how this could continue it could, could have continued to go on for so long that it's it's the discomfort is everyone emerging their heads from the sand at the same time and so that's where I think that spotlight really can shine. If you if you take it, take a completely different tact. I don't know what it is. It's more mm. like a hard boiled detective, like a complete fuck up who actually is doing something right. And I feel like I feel like these people are most certainly not that. But I think it's also you you be, you start to see the world through the prism of your experience. And I think it's also mm. it's it started to happen. It's 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 actually a great modern allegory for some of the journalistic moral quandaries that we're observing in our real life right now. It's like those those, yeah, those entities true. that like looked at Trump like a car crash. Oh, isn't he entertaining this car crash that's entertaining? It's like there comes a point when he gets elected, they're like, um, Actually, <laughs> uh, did we have something to do with this, guys? Just want to clarify. Did did we have something to do with this, guys? Just want to check. And that's what I where I think Spotlight really shines is that like people fail, people regret, people don't don't dig. They don't dig hard enough. Mm. Um, they don't they don't they don't scratch enough to 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 break through. It's it's one of those things that I think can really work. But but that being said. 
I'm not doing a minute-by-minute show <laughs> on Spotlight, and nor am I doing a minute-by-minute show uh, on The Post. Um, <laughs> I am doing a series on Zodiac. Thank God, doing <laughs> doing the Lord's good work. <laughs> uh, so I feel like I feel like this might be the best way to end is to say. <laughs> Is is to is to thank you for connecting the mythical um, to what is you know meant to be this you know shoe leather on the ground, very kinetic, very enrapturing, real life retelling of a story that just so happens to have these mythical footprints all over it. So it's been a pleasure to talk to you about and to connect it with all these other movies, but. Um, to also say that, you know, maybe this is what I'm discovering about myself and discovering about you, Dan, is that we are yeah. both obsessives uh, <laughs> who are trying to do good and really deeply connect and relate to other obsessives who maybe implode other elements of their lives <laughs> in order to in order to fulfill the goodness that they need to f- uh, fulfill. So... Uh, well, I think that's one of the nicest things anyone's ever said to me. I think it is. <laughs> I hope so. It's been a pleasure talking to you again, mate. It's always it's a pleasure. A- Thank you for having me. Thanks for having me back. That was my incredible guest, Daniel Lamon. If you want to find Dan, you can find him on Twitter at, at Daniel Lamon. L-A-M-M-I-N. He is a writer for Switch. He's also a theatre maker. But really, you want to check out his brand new podcast, Ink and Paint, a journey through Disney animated classics. You can listen now, www.inkandpaint.com.au. Thank you, Dan. As always, an absolute pleasure. This has been another episode of All the President's Minutes, and we just want to thank you so much for listening and following along the show. If you want to help us out, we would love if you could share, uh, subscribe, rate, review the show. It helps other people discover it, and we have an amazing array of shows coming to One Heat Minute Productions feed or already happening. So right now, we are past the hour mark with Travis Woods' Increment Vice next week. Ryan Johnson, director of Brick, The Last Jedi. It is going to be a banger. So you definitely need to subscribe and share that one. Josie and the Podcats, our limited series on the 2001 Josie and the Pussycats with host Maria Lewis is almost at the end this week. If you're listening to this episode, in just a day's time, you're going to be able to hear the finale episode with one more bonus episode to go after that. A new show will be popping up to replace Josie in our feed on a weekly basis. That is going to be Miami Nice, where Katie Walsh and I settle in with a couple of mojitos and share all the things we love about Michael Mann's 2006 film, Miami Vice. We'll be talking characters, we'll be talking quotes, we'll be talking needle drops, we'll be talking mojitos. And of course, in just a couple of months' time, we have our new series, a limited one at that, but nonetheless extensive zodiac chronicle so one heat minute productions is where you need to go our back catalog of amazing shows contingent we went through and spent basically a month talking to people uh on uh line about the uh, uh covid19 crisis last 12 minutes of the mohicans one heat minute our flagship show please subscribe rate share review we'd love if you could do that and we appreciate you and uh thank you so much for listening